0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with an exploration of how the laws of war, international law, and the right of self-defense apply to the war in Gaza as the civilian death toll in Gaza mounts, and Prime Minister Netanyahu castigates the world's human and women's rights organizations for not speaking out against the rape and sexual mutilation of Israeli women by Hamas. Joining us is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books in his fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. His latest book is Liberalism, against itself, Cold War Intellectuals in the Making of Our Times, and he has an article at the UK's prospect magazine, America's Undoing. Then, with aid to Ukraine stalled in both the House and the Senate, we will look into how much the beleaguered country is falling victim to toxic US politics and pro-Putin leaders in Europe as Hungary's Orbán threatens to veto EU aid to Ukraine. Joining us is William Arkin a senior editor at Newsweek, and one of America's premier military experts who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And his latest article in Newsweek is Will Saudi Prince MBS Become Biden's Partner in Containing Mid-East Conflict? Then finally, with Liz Cheney getting a lot of media attention as she warns that, quote, we are sleepwalking into dictatorship and campaigns to stop the re-election of Trump, which is the reason Biden just gave for running for a second term. We'll speak with Stephanie Muravchik, who is Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Her research explores the intersections of politics with class, family and religion, and she's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 election. And she has a forthcoming book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Samuel Moyne, who is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in his fields of European intellectual history, human rights, history, and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And his latest book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals in the Making of Our Times, and he has an article at UK's Prospect magazine, America's Undoing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: So Samuel, can we sort of explore your work in terms of the laws of war, international law and the right of self-defense uh, yes. as they apply to this war in Gaza? as the civilian death toll amounts, and as Prime Minister Netanyahu has been castigating the world's human and women's rights organizations for not speaking out against the rape and sexual mutilation of Israeli women by Hamas. So how much do these laws of war, international law, and the right of self-defense apply? Because I recall just shortly after October 7th, when, when uh, President biden went to israel he did warn the israelis not to act the way that the united states did after 911 out of blind fury and vengeance which seems to be exactly what's happened so how much do you think the lessons of 911 were not learned
1: so i mean a main theme of of my work long before october 7th is that we avoid the politics of intervention to our peril when we come to focus on the brutality or humanity of the way that states fight their wars. And I think this episode is a, a perfect illustration. Um, there there is law, not just morality, about when states like Israel can engage in self-defense under international law, but, uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of airtime. Uh, instead, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's just asserted a, a kind of uh, obvious right to self defense, and Joe Biden and his staffers have backed it. And instead, the debate, uh, including the one that Biden wants to have, is about how brutal people are being in the apparently inevitable war that follows. And I just think that's a mistake because. Uh, there's are reasons to question uh, Israel's right to self-defense. And, you know, if you think that only a political solution is available ultimately, uh, it it's unclear why we wouldn't want to make that the first topic rather than one for someday once so much blood is shed.
0: But isn't it also about taking the bait? We seem to have taken bin Laden's bait and actually verified his claim that uh, the Crusaders are out to occupy Arab lands.
1: Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, you know, I, I think that there's a, a, a difficult conversation to have around I- Israeli colonialism. Um, but, you know, America has been a new form of empire that has not relied generally on, on territorial conquest uh, at, at any rate, since it gave up, you know, sovereignty over the Philippines after World War II. And it, it's in part that background that has allowed American uh, politics, political figures to focus on Vladimir Putin as this uniquely evil figure who has this atavistic desire to gain more territory. Um, obviously, Osama bin Laden had... Uh, some argument to make about American hegemony I don't think it, it's one that um, you know though actually you know young people are apparently discovering his old writings and taking them seriously these days I, I wouldn't start there to try to understand contemporary politics especially because they did involve a kind of rearguard defense um, in in radical Islamism of certain, things I find abhorrent. Um, I'm not talking even mainly about political violence in the name of religion, but just, you know, uh, the the patriarchal order of traditional religion, which uh, bin Laden hoped to restore along with, you know, sovereignty over the sacred holy sites of Islam
0: but we did invade iraq and and we're paying for it today are we not uh, well
1: well that's for sure i mean i i think a well-framed criticism of american hegemony would would identify it as a new form of empire that you know strays in ways that are obvious to everyone um you know towards military intervention but have actually you know been a, a kind of new form of empire that relies on a lot of of control from the air, uh, and you know, th- ultimately through pulling out troops but retaining, you know, military authority and presence uh, through especially air power but also special forces around the world. So, um, it, I wouldn't want to overgeneralize from Iraq just like I wouldn't want to follow. Uh, Bin Laden's framework for thinking about the nature of empire today.
0: Well, would you then suggest that the better strategy, apart from the notion that revenge is a dish served cold, is that we should show sort of restraint? I mean, the idea that we have such a powerful military, and the same with the Israelis having a powerful military, against an asymmetrical warfare attack would indicate that you know had we been restrained and not gone into Iraq for example we'd be so much better off and and maybe sure. the, the Israelis would be better off not using their massive uh, military power but figuring out other ways to neutralize Hamas I mean
1: or 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 actually finally learning in both cases that political solutions that involve compromise and negotiation understanding your enemies coming to terms with their grievances would be superior. And, you know, as I read it, I, I I don't know how you do. I mean, October 7th was in the first instance, a massive security failure on the part of, of Israel, just as September 11th uh, was in the first instance, a massive security failure on the part of American, uh, you know, secure this American security apparatus of that time. And, you know, the first thing to do is to engage in self-examination, uh, but and 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 you know, build better a better security apparatus in the short term. But in the medium and long term, once you realize that this is a political conflict that takes the form of violence, uh, the only solution is going to be political. Uh, at uh, otherwise, you just perpetuate. Um, you know, at least the potential for violent responses later, as we've seen in the kind of American constant reproduction of its own terrorist enemies. Um, And I have no doubt that um, that Israel's response, you know, in, in a spirit of vengeance, more than self protection to October 7th is short sighted and will have, you know, unintended consequences. And that is something that I think Israel could have learned from what the United States did after
0: 9-11. So it is nevertheless, I imagine, difficult to turn the other cheek. Israel's Physicians for Human Rights report is absolutely devastating. The BBC have seen and heard the evidence, and uh, some of it comes, for example, from uh, a young woman at the rock concert who was pretending to be dead as she watched a mass militants gang rape a woman as she lay on the ground, and then the men then stood her up as blood trickled from her back. They yanked her hair and then sliced her breast off, playing with it as they assaulted her, and the last man shot her in the head while he was still inside her. So how do you factor in that sort of horror and the horror of 9-11 in terms of, in a sense, turning the other cheek? Is it possible i mean obviously the re- the opposite results that we've seen both in in Gaza and in in the aftermath of 9/11 would indicate that as i mentioned earlier that you shouldn't take the bait even though it may be incredibly horrific
1: well you know the the christian admonition uh you know from uh the sermon on the mount is is moving but i don't think we have to you know, require that response, you know, especially of Jews, um, though Jesus was one. I think we could require people after 9-11 or today to distinguish between justice and vengeance. And, you know, in my mind, what um, al-Qaeda and Hamas have done is, uh, you know, criminal um, and certainly think it's hard for me to regard as liberatory acts. Um, uh, and if that's true, then justice requires accountability for them as well. Uh, I don't think that can in any way be a rationale for, a, a military response that, um, is much kind of worse morally, um, obviously the Israelis claim that the big difference in their response is that they don't target civilians directly or engage in the kind of, uh, war crimes against women in particular, that, uh, of which Hamas stands accused. But it, 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 it seems to me that any moral reckoning that, um, that obfuscates the fact that israel has killed more than 10 times the number of civilians as hamas did is 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 not adequate and so you know i i think that those those kinds of vile acts you know demand acknowledgement and you know recognition and ultimately some form of of accountability or justice but that's no excuse for the kind of brutal responses uh, that these powerful states have chosen in the face of the uh, exasperated crimes of the weak.
0: So, in other words, these non-state actors like Hamas and Al-Qaeda, is there any mechanism in international law that would indicate that there should be a police response against criminal acts as opposed to a military response from nation states.
1: For sure. I mean, the situation is under the uh, jurisdiction already of the International Criminal Court, uh, and it will it will not ignore the crimes of Hamas soldiers, uh, including you know rape as as a crime of war. Uh, There's a separate issue, which we didn't cover, um, which is that, you know, ultimately, a lot of us think Gaza was under constructive occupation by Israel on October 7th, which means that, you know, even if you think there's a right of self-defense against non-state actors in the United Nations Charter, these were uh, subjects of an occupation regime on Israeli territory, occupied territory, and if that's true, then the international law that would govern this kind of thing would be occupation law. Now, it's true that occupation law uh, is permissive and allows states to get rowdy uh, when they're challenged in their occupation, but uh, it—I don't think it—it—it—it it, it, it rules out. a a response to Hamas's crimes that, um, you know, could take the form of criminal processes, um, nor does it uh, by any means uh, allow what Israel has been doing uh, in response uh, in, you know,
0: recent weeks. Well, nevertheless, you know, Hamas has gained heroic status on the so-called Arab street. So, Prime Minister Netanyahu's castigation of Western human rights and women's rights organizations is, is clearly not changing things in any well, way. Well,
1: that's clear, but but it's also very interesting that you know out of the blue, Joe Biden is prioritizing a, a kind of attention to uh, crimes against women in southern Israel on October seventh, because it's it's not the Arab Street in the first instance that's going to impose limits on Israeli policy. It's American uh, American leaders who have the uh, power to tell their Israeli counterparts and to an extent clients that there are limits. And I think it's here that that Biden from the first has been really in the wrong place morally and politically and now is risking a kind of meltdown of Middle Eastern politics, precisely because uh, he's he's always, like many American leaders, has has prized support for the standing governments of the Middle East. The trouble is that those governments can't always contain the rage that their own repressive policies provoke, and. Uh, now American hegemony in practice is also the target of lots of rage on the Arab street because it's clearly not a beneficent empire, and they can see that. Um, Even if they have a lot of bad reasons for cheering Hamas on, they have some good ones for thinking that America is not an honest broker, a neutral player in Middle East politics.
0: So while Israel clearly has lost the narrative, and my understanding is that groups like APAC are absolutely tearing their hair out. They can't understand why young American kids are supporting the Palestinians, uh, and because of Biden's bear hug with Netanyahu, he's losing the narrative as well, right, and then endangering his own reelection. So what should he be doing, Samuel?
1: Well, you know, he I think he made a critical error in judgment in the earliest days because he assumed the continuation of a status quo ante where um, the Israel lobby could just define the boundaries of acceptable opinion. And I think the most amazing thing from an American perspective after October 7th is just how much the balance of opinion has shifted, um, especially among youth. Uh, in ways that are bare directly on Biden's political viability. In part, that's a story about the number of Muslim Americans in Michigan, but it's a far broader story about the unpopularity of a kind of blank check check, uh, American support for whatever Israel wants to do. Um, And I think he does, I think, have a, a kind of strategic problem because you could imagine him overcorrecting and incurring the rage of a lot of American Jews. Um, But I think an equal number of American Jews actually think he needs to correct. Uh, And if that's true, I think we may, if polling holds up, see the administration begin to impose actual constraints on Israeli policy rather than just rhetorical constraints, which is what we've seen so far.
0: So, how do you see this thing? There's never been an end game as far as the Israeli right has been vis a vis the Palestinians, except they want to make life miserable for them and the hope that perhaps they'll go away, which they clearly won't. And to some extent, that's an extension of what's happening in Gaza now. You're pushing 2.2 million or whatever's left of the population down into a smaller and smaller enclave from a small enclave to begin with. And there's no end game there. Except to dump them on the Egyptians, which the Egyptians I imagine are not entertaining at this point. So, is there an, an end game here?
1: Well, I'm not sure you're right because you know there have been end games in the past that seemed unimaginable, but you know were reached uh, in the form of expulsion or even extermination. And I, it is very popular on the Israeli right, it has been for decades to think that you know the trouble in 1948 was that not enough people were transferred out of what you know Israeli territory or the nearby territory not that too many were and people like Bezalel Smotrich you know really do believe in a, a kind of self deportation regime as Americans in some parts of the country have have called it where you make life so difficult Uh, that you incite people to leave. Uh, And there has been discussion of making deals with regional partners like Egypt to accept, uh, you know, masses of Palestinian refugees. As of today, I think you're right. But I don't think we can just, you know, assume that things won't get worse. Um, What is the end game for Israel? I don't know. I mean, I don't believe as of today that it's very credible that they actually can remove Hamas from power in Gaza. And even if it were, as the history of 9-11 showed, you generally produce more anger and rage by through counterterrorism than you do kind of uh, reaching a permanent security. So once again, you know, the only available endgame actually is peace in a political process. And it's just a matter of time before Israel, uh, since it won't choose to engage in that, is forced to do so.
0: Well, Sammy I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights, history, and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And his latest book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals in the Making of Our Times, and he has an article at UK's prospect magazine, America's Undoing. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how aid to Ukraine is stalled in both the House and the Senate and is falling victim to toxic US politics and pro-Putin leaders in Europe.
2: While the TVs change stations, scroll messages, victims and Christians both drinking blood. And they'll pray for the destruction of all hatred more often Just those with hate for us Cause it hurts when you discover one's worse and one's better To suffer or cause others to And you can live by your conscience Now guilt is a concept you're no longer subscribing to
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Los Angeles Times. At The Washington Post, he conceived and co-authored the landmark top-secret America investigation and co-wrote the national bestseller of its same name, and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United States Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Close, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and his latest article on Newsweek is Will Saudi Prince MBS Become Biden Partner in Containing Mideast Conflict? Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin.
3: Thank you for having me on again, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Bill, and I wanted to talk to you about your article at Newsweek about MBS. But before we do that, uh, obviously things are looking pretty bleak for the Ukrainians with Tuesday's blow-up in the Senate when uh, there was apparently a shouting match between Democratic and Republican senators. The Republican senators walked out there and demanding more money spent on the border both on a border wall and a change in asylum laws and of course the house is saying the same thing with mike johnson saying they're not going to approve any aid to ukraine unless something is done about the border even though it's not clear exactly what they want done but it sounds like more of trump's builder wall and a change in the asylum rules and then on the european front of course you've had the election of uh, pro-putin far-right candidates uh, now in in the Netherlands, along with Slovakia, and of course, in Hungary, Viktor Orbán is promising to veto an EU aid package for Ukraine. So you've always said to me over the, over the many conversations we've had, Bill, that Ukraine is, uh, has won the war, but at this point, it's looking bleak. Do you agree that things don't look quite as promising as they have in the past?
3: Well, Ian, as for the war itself, I would say what we see is a basic stalemate. Um, Russia has certainly not made any advances uh, in the last six months. And uh, Ukraine has done uh, as well as it probably can do on the ground of pushing Russian forces back, uh, both uh, further away from Kharkiv, the, the second largest city in the, in the east, and also just in general, uh, stemming the Russian offensive uh, as it tried to move up the Dnieper River uh, towards uh, central Ukraine. So I would characterize the war itself as one of stalemate. Uh, but I also would point out that there is a sense of exhaustion in, in Ukraine right now, especially amongst young people, uh, and and maybe the the stirrings of some disaffection, uh, with the fact that this war, uh, is now, uh, approaching two years, two years. And I, I feel like, uh, we should probably evaluate that exhaustion because I think that's going to have a bigger effect on what Ukraine does than, uh, than Zelensky's magnificent propaganda machine. Uh, you know, we always hear out of Zelensky and company that they are on the brink of disaster and that they need uh, this unlimited spigot of arms to be delivered to them and aid to be delivered to them. That's that's been their message from day one, and it's been a very effective message up until uh, the current Congress and uh, and the questions that are being raised itself from members of Congress as to whether or not this investment in Ukraine's defense is worthwhile. Um, I can see both sides of that question, Ian, in the sense that, uh, we are certainly watching Ukraine decimate the Russian military and humiliate the Russian military, and that will have long-term strategic effect for the United States. Um, but, but beyond that, uh, We definitely see a a stalemate, and and it's been a terrible and bloody stalemate. Over 300,000 soldiers on both sides of the front lines have died, Uh, and and so we have to evaluate the Ukraine war in this context. So you have Zelensky and company on the one hand saying, you know, if if Western aid is not provided, uh, somehow Ukraine will fall. I, I don't think that's exactly true. Uh, they certainly will not be able to surmount the this, this stalemate and move forward. Um, but I, I imagine even if the United States did cut off funding for Ukraine, um, that the Western European nations uh, would pick it up. And I, I traveled to Europe uh, three times this year, uh, to the UK and to Italy and to Sweden. And, and what really struck me is the emotional energy that you see in those countries about the war in Ukraine, which is that uh, they are fully uh, uh, committed and fully uh, activated over something that is very close to them. Whereas I think in the United States, we're just so far away from the European battlefield uh, that, that, that the American public is, is itself disengaged. So to me, uh, I see the possibility of the Europeans uh, uh, picking up the slack um, and and financing Ukraine's continued fighting. Um, but I also do see a, a silver lining in the sense that uh, maybe the carnage will uh, stop as greater and greater pressure uh, comes to bear on both countries to negotiate uh, some kind of a fire and uh, and begin a political process rather than continuing the war. I want to I want to stress one point about exhaustion in Ukraine that is interesting in context of the Hamas war, and that is that Russia never destroyed Kiev. Um, uh, yes, there have been missile strikes on targets in Kiev, and there have been. Um, you know, fighting in the initial days of the war that reached the outskirts of the capital. But by and large, uh, the people of Kiev uh, are now living more or less normal lives with, with, uh, with everything that comes with that. And though they all might know people who are involved in the war, they might have friends or family that have been enlisted in the war and are fighting, and um, and it touches all elements of Ukrainian society. The truth of the matter is that that by and large, um, exhaustion and, and disaffection comes from the fact that that Russia never destroyed Kiev. I mean that, it, in a, in a funny way though, we have a picture in the United States that Russia committed war crimes and attacked everything. uh, The truth of the matter is that the Ukrainian capital was more or less and has been more or less a sanctuary and that that now might aid Russia in a funny way. And that's in contrast to Gaza where the Israelis have been unrelenting in attacks uh, that have affected uh, civilians in in all aspects of, of Gazan society. And, and and the Israelis have done so with the hope that that might provoke uh, disaffection and, and anger about Hamas amongst the Palestinian civilian population, taking a very different approach than the Russians did. And, and we see that now in terms of uh, uh, the struggle to just maintain a humanitarian uh, uh, normalcy in Gaza, whereas in In Ukraine, which is, you know, 1600 times larger than Gaza, uh, the fighting is really relegated to a small area. And most of the country is, 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 is going about its normal lives.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not sure that you could say that it's normal to be at war and the infrastructure being destroyed and Russian missiles coming over all the time and, uh, and the asymmetry that's been there since day one, which is that the Ukrainians are restrained from attacking Russia, whereas the Russians are free to attack Ukraine, both in terms of military targets and civilian targets. So that's been the situation from day one. And now... The Washington Post has a two part series called Stalemate Ukraine's Failed Counter Offensive. The first uh, part of it was uh, just released a few days ago Miscalculations, Divisions Marked Offensive Planning by U.S. and Ukraine. And what it says I mean, it's a sort of an insight on how the negotiations between the Ukrainian military and the U.S. military w- w- transpired, but essentially the U.S. Military and intelligence people were trying to tell the Ukrainians not to attack on three fronts in their counteroffensive but to limit the attack to one front and go after Melitopol and apparently the ukrainians didn't listen to them but I find it pretty difficult to to swallow bill that here we are telling the ukrainians how to fight the war, but we're not giving them the tools to fight the war
3: well uh, first of all i i i I think that the Washington Post analysis is is just one analysis, Ian. It's not it's not the gospel truth. So let's evaluate it just for a second, and then I'll respond. Uh, first of all, uh, let's just imagine for a moment that the United States was attacked, uh, and and it was attacked in the south from from Texas. It was attacked in the north from Canada, and it was attacked. Uh, by sea on the west on the east coast do you think that any president or any general is going to say we can't fight on all three fronts i I mean it's inconceivable so i get it that the armchair uh desk bound uh, u.s military consultants and and advisors are telling ukraine to do x but x might just not be possible that's that's the reality and so uh we kind of built up the counteroffensive as being essential this spring. And then, when it didn't transpire because the war is in a stalemate, people are saying somehow that this is bleak for Ukraine, when the reality is that Ukraine has held the Russian forces off now for over a year. So, I don't necessarily buy the Washington Post analysis. Secondly, the U.S. military itself has been confused as to what it is that it wants Ukraine to do. So yes, we have supplied them with tanks, uh, albeit very late, and other armored vehicles that are part of the ability to strike a uh, counteroffensive on the ground. But we've also supplied them with HIMARS and other uh, rocket launchers that are long-range tools uh, to essentially not aid the direct fight on the front lines, but to strike behind Russian enemy lines to hit specific targets or hit uh, leadership or or damage Russian supply lines. And that strategy uh, pushed by the U.S. Army uh, has essentially failed because, again, we are not seeing movement, Ian. What we're seeing is virtual trench lines where these guys are just shooting artillery at each other and killing each other at at an enormous rate. So I don't really want to tip my hat to the U.S. Army in terms of either its advice or what it has supplied to Ukraine. The truth of the matter is that the U.S. Army was experimenting with the idea that somehow these long-range attacks uh, we're going to weaken the Russian military to such an extent uh, that it would collapse. But the truth is that Vladimir Putin is willing to take uh, casualties at a rate that is just inconceivable to the West or to the U.S. Army, a- and it's willing to absorb those casualties and and man the front lines with convicts and people from mental institutions and and people who are dragooned into combat, and so. It's also a bit of mirror imaging, which is to say, oh, if our supply lines were were ruined, uh, that somehow our army would be brought to a standstill when the reality of Russian military strategy and practices, if their supply lines are ruined, guess what? The soldiers don't eat. They don't get decent medical care. They don't get fuel. But it's okay, because they're not moving anywhere. So mm-hmm. I don't take this As a serious analysis, I take it as sort of the discussion in Washington about the war as to the reality of what the war actually is.
0: But the HIMARS, the Russians have been on the jam, the GPS, haven't they? And the, what do they call it, ATACAMs, second generation? We have been slow in supplying them, haven't we?
3: I, I think that. Uh, there has been an electronic war that's taken place on both sides that has somewhat impeded uh, uh, the use of certain kinds of fancy new weapons. But by and large, no, Ian. The, uh, the Mars has, has exacted a really significant price. And if ATACMS is deployed, it will exact even more. But the truth of the matter is that the war is going to be fought at the front lines. And that's not where either of these long range missile systems are relevant, nor where they have been used. And the strategy of trying to deplete Russia's supply lines or de- damage Russia in the rear uh, has has really not yielded uh, the result that uh, that the army, the U.S. Army imagined. So uh, I don't think it's about any kind of silver bullet on the part of the Russians to jam high Mars or or whether a weapon A works or weapon B works, certainly the Russians are themselves facing exactly the same circumstances of electronic warfare and other uh, fancy uh, uh, equipments that are being used by Ukraine. So it's it's again, it's a standoff. It's not that the, U, the U.S. supplied weapons have, have failed. It's not that Ukraine has done something wrong. It's that it is gotten to the place where you have two exhausted militaries fighting in a very small area along a fifteen hundred mile uh front line, and they are exacting enormous military losses enormous okay
0: so bill, just in closing. Uh, Let's touch on your article at at Newsweek, Will Saudi Prince MBS become Biden's partner in containing Middle East conflict? It seems that that's not what's happening. The Arab street is riled up, and these leaders who are hardly legitimate in the Arab world are terrified, looking over their shoulder, and uh, the U.S. is dead in the water, diplomatically speaking, in that part of the world, and we certainly uh, the Arab street blames us as much as they blame Israel.
3: I think all of that is true, Ian, but also at the same time, the United States, I get the sense, especially talking to people in Washington, they've moved on from the actual war itself. Yes, they're concerned about Israel's conduct of the war and Palestinian civilian deaths, but they're already looking at what the security solution is going to be in the future. And they're enlisting whoever they can enlist that might have influence there. So MBS is an important character, not only because of his prominence in the Arab world, I wouldn't say popularity, but he's one of the few figures uh, that transcends his own country, Uh, but also because as the Houthis undertake more attacks against the United States and Israel from Yemen, uh, that draws the Saudis into the into the conflict in a, in a very direct way. I mean, Saudi Arabia has already shot down Houthi missiles trying to attack Israel. Think about that. Saudi Arabia is shooting down uh, Houthi missiles that are directed at Israel, not directed at Saudi Arabia. So mm-hmm. we already see some weird uh, re- reconstructions going on And I think that the role that the Saudis might be able to play uh, in the future is one that Washington believes. Uh, It's one that Washington is increasingly banking on, which is ironic given that the Saudis undertook such an indiscriminate campaign in Yemen themselves where 360,000 or more civilians died, and that Biden as president has promised to make Saudi Arabia into a pariah state.
0: Well, William Arkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Thank you for having me on again,
0: Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts. He has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council, and is the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And his latest article at Newsweek is Will Saudi Prince MBS Become Biden Partner in Containing Mideast Conflict? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Liz Cheney, as she campaigns to stop the re-election of Trump, which is the reason Biden just gave for running for a second term, is warning that, quote, we are sleepwalking into dictatorship. We will never return, never return. what you gonna do when your war is over will wait for you welcome back i'm ian masters and this is background briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Stephanie Muravchik, who is Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersection of politics with class, family and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of the three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 elections, And she has a forthcoming book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephanie Muravchik.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thanks, uh, Stephanie. And um, Liz Cheney has been obviously doing a lot of media now because her book just came out on Tuesday, Oath and Honor, a Memoir and a Warning. And, of course, her warning succinctly is that we are sleepwalking we in America are sleepwalking into dictatorship. And Donald Trump of course was asked that question on Fox News on Tuesday night with Hannity and Brit Hume and he um he kept dodging the question of whether he'd be in any way a dictator or invoke dictatorial policies. But he did settle on saying that he'd be a dictator only for one day. And, of course, he's already said that on day one he would invoke invoke the Insurrection Act. So um, <laughs> what do you make of that contrast there between the warnings of, of Liz Cheney and the intentions of Donald Trump?
2: Well, I, I think it's obviously deeply concerning that Trump is, at the very least, um, at this stage, Violating these rhetorical norms, he's already shown that he's willing to use all kinds of underhanded means to, you know, retain power, and um, and now he's seeming to signal. He's, if anything, he's amping up the rhetoric, and uh, I I do hope that people heed Cheney's warning. Um, I hope Republicans, especially traditional Republicans. You know, heed her warning. But it is concerning that he's, you know, um, making these kinds of sort of uh, uh, wild claims uh, in public, and and so obviously a lot of people are watching carefully with great concern.
0: Well, even uh, the new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has revealed extremely anti-democratic and anti-constitutional behaviour. Just on Tuesday, he said that he would release the footage of the January 6th insurrection from inside the Capitol itself, Uh, but he would blur the faces of the insurrectionists in order to protect them from the Department of Justice. So here you have the Speaker of the House basically promising a lawless act to go against the very uh, Department of Justice uh, in the United States in order to protect lawbreakers. So... That's extraordinary in itself. I mean it's happening you know, both at the executive level and the and the legislative level.
2: Yeah, I think it's what's what's particularly stunning and and I do believe that that his that he walked it back or his office walked it back. Um but but what was stunning not only the the idea that he would try to thwart the Department of Justice and, and thwart uh investigation into serious law breaking but also the deeper sense that he as speaker of the house is somehow not connected to the wider federal government that somehow he is uh, that 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 the justice department is is at odds is somehow an opponent of his um it seems extraordinary there, there's no sense of of the kind of uh, mutual toleration for ones you know, for people, you know, for an administration that's in the, you know, a democratic administration, uh, it's treating it as if it's somehow a hostile enemy um, that you have to protect your people from rather than a, a cooperative effort to govern the country. Um, and so I, I found just the distance that it, that it spoke to very frightening.
0: But of course, Trump's at war with the Department of Justice and, um, you know, the rule of law itself. So uh, Johnson is uh, is more or less, I think, on many levels, showing his fealty to Trump, not the least of which he's planning on impeaching uh, Biden, which is something that Trump has been pressuring to do. But let's talk about Liz Cheney, because, as I mentioned, she's been very much in the media in the last few days, um, plugging her new book, Oath and Honour, a memoir and a warning. And in many ways, she could even be... Uh, Running for president, although she says she's not. In fact, she said made it clear that she wouldn't run for president because if she were to be a spoiler and help Trump. But the fact that she's talking about it and others are questioning her about it. Uh, how do you see her? You you know you've covered her in Wyoming and her relationship with the state that has just has the one uh, member of Congress, um, and uh, she represented that state and was high up in the Republican party in the House, and then uh, essentially, uh, because she took a stand for democracy in a Democratic election, she lost her seat. So what an irony.
2: Yeah, I think she's quite heroic, uh, of course, uh, in that she was willing to come out so bravely uh, and sacrifice quite a lot, of course, both uh, sacrifice, you know, she must have seen the the political consequences that she would suffer if she came out against so popular a president, particularly so popular uh, in Wyoming. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, a lot of these Republicans, like herself, who have been brave, uh, and stood up to Trump publicly, are actually, you know, forced to deal with all kinds of security concerns now. So it's also brave in a very visceral, immediate way. Um, I think... One thing that is interesting to me is the, the even the title of her book, because I think she and Trump have these um, contrasting notions of of honor. Um, she has a kind of honor that is rooted deeply in in a classical understanding of the American Democratic Republican tradition. She's of course the daughter not only of a political leader, uh, but but of really two historians. Um, Her father wrote a history of speakers of the house and, and her mother of course has written biographies of Madison and so forth. And so she must have developed as a, her own, you know, in addition to her own obviously legal training, she comes from a long tradition of people who are thinking in very broad sweep of history when she thinks about the well-being of America. And, and so she, she has this idea about honor, which has to do with, um, Fidelity to a kind of integrity, fidelity to the Constitution, to a kind of personal integrity at all costs, uh, even if it makes her um, lose status as she lost her seat ultimately. Um, uh, in the here and now, she sees things in, in the big sweep of history, which she sometimes invokes. Um, m- Trump, meanwhile, has uh, exhibits another kind of honor culture, anthropologists refer to it as an honor culture, which is really a kind of status culture, which values above all status and power uh, in the here and now, and encourages people who, who believe, who think this way, to think that you have to do anything to go after people who might challenge your reputation, your status, uh, and show even a willingness to, to break all rules, to use violence. Um, if they if they challenge or insult you. And so he's pursuing this much, I think, cruder form of what anthropologists refer to as an honor culture against Liz Cheney's very um, admirable, classically, historically rooted honor culture with, with, you know, Harkins goes all the way back to George Washington.
0: So Trump, of course, is ahead of Biden in some of the polls, uh, and he certainly has captured the Republican Party. And uh, Wednesday night's debate probably will make absolutely no difference. So he's got it pretty much wrapped up, it would seem, particularly in the primaries. Uh, so which is which means that uh, he'll be the nominee, which is uh, most likely to be the case. So on the other hand, you know you have Biden, who's not doing that well. But if you kind of break it down, I guess in a way say about 40% of the country had locked into Trump and then 60% are potentially for Biden, but they're not really firmed up. And it seems to me that the only way that Biden is going to win is running against Trump, essentially. Because that's, and in fact, Biden said that on Tuesday. He said that the reason he's running again is to stop Trump. So he's framing it in that way. But if you go back to 2020, the only way that Trump lost in the Electoral College, where he came very close, was by about 44,000 votes. And they were largely disaffected Republicans. So the role that Liz Cheney is playing now could be the the key factor in this upcoming 2024 election, where she's giving traditional Republicans a place to go, along with independents, uh, and the opposite of that, of course, is what uh, Joe Manchin is doing, which is he's also giving independence a place to go, but at the expense of, of Biden, as opposed to Liz Cheney, who's giving uh, independence and, Republic- and traditional Republicans a place to go at the expense of Trump. So that's how I see it. How do you see it?
2: yeah I don't know exactly i mean she she has not totally cut off the possibility of a of a run um but has you know seemed to definitely um said that her her goal is that Trump not get the presidency again, uh, which I think shows a lot of clarity that is i think you know the key important. Um, thing to do. Um, I, I've I've heard good arguments on both sides about um, you know that there's always a risk with a third party candidate being you know it's it's not always predictable what kind of spoiler they act as um, and so I know there's people that are concerned that that it could pull um, votes in a way that would um, that would help Trump. I've also I know the no labels. Um, The people in the no labels movement are saying no, their polling is saying that um, that uh, I think they're talking now about running a a moderate Republican, um, that their their polling suggests that it it would not help Trump. Um, And I'm not I don't do that. That's a little outside my you know, I I talk to activists and and political leaders and, and voters and and that mathematical Um, statistical analysis is not, is not what I do, but, but, um, but I think it's a risky, it's certainly a risky gambit to run a third party, uh, candidate because it's not always clear, uh, how that is ultimately going to play out. And because as you point out, often the margin of victory are these very small margins in swing States. Um, and, and so once you start entering sort of unknown factors, Uh, unpredictable factors in a close election, which it will certainly be, be, it's hard to know how it's going to break.
0: Right. But just in the last couple of minutes, I was suggesting that that Liz Cheney will give uh, disaffected Republicans and independents a place to go in the sense that she would support, ultimately would support Biden because she's dead against Trump. Whereas, you mean uh, by,
2: by channeling her, so, exactly. by, by, by encouraging disaffected Republicans to vote for Biden in that sense?
0: Yeah, I that, think that, that they ultimate, will... ultimately will be her in, intention because she's made it clear that the bottom line is we've got to stop Trump. And that's essentially what Biden just said. I'm, the reason I'm running is to stop Trump. So that's how I see it, not that she's going to run as a th- independent. You know, she certainly made that clear that she's not going to run as a third party. Because she's made it clear that she'd be a spoiler, you know. Right, right. She, I, I think she didn't, yes. Yeah. So, so
2: yeah, I hope that, I hope that people take her, follow her lead in, in prioritizing above all um, the defeat of Trump, given that he's um, shown himself willing to completely, you know, violate the Constitution and, and um, our, our Republican, Democratic traditions. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, she's obviously very loathed by a big chunk of the party. She's very admired uh, as a heroine by by a smaller slice of the party, and maybe that would be enough. Um, I Probably something would come down to um, how the independents read the situation. Um, Biden's poll numbers certainly are troubling um, and... I hope, I hope, I do hope that uh, some of the establishment Republicans follow her lead and, and see that this is really an incredibly consequential election in 2024 um, and, and vote accordingly.
0: Well, Stephanie Moravchik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephanie Muravchik, who's a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersection of politics with class, family, and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flip Republican in the 2016 election. And she has a forthcoming book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right.